We go ahead, go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, everyone. My name is Preston. I'm the associate pastor here at St. Peter's, and it's great to see you all today. Um, we are continuing on, actually wrapping up our third week in this mini-series we've been doing in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, I still don't know if I'm saying that right, so you'll just have to go with whatever comes out of my mouth. Uh, we've been following this conversation that Habakkuk has been having with God in this little book of prophecy in the Old Testament. And we've been asking a particular question to the prophet throughout the book. Um, and it's, it's something like this. How do we live in this world, in our lives today, uh, as we pray, as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we do this? And how do we not only survive, but even thrive in faith uh, and enter into the abundant life that Jesus paints for us in the Sermon on the Mount? In the Gospel of Matthew, we've been asking Habakkuk this question because he lived in a dark time uh, under a corrupt king where, where there, was, there was looming Babylonian invasion on the horizon um, when the foreign power of Babylon was soon to come and conquer Judah and conquer Israel and lead them into exile. Well, there was little hope in Habakkuk's day and there was few signs of faithfulness around him. Yet in his prayer, in his conversation, in his talking with God, he finds solid ground to stand on as he prays thy kingdom come. So how do you do it? Well, we started in chapter 1 where we saw Habakkuk making this honest, raw complaint to God and sticking really tough questions to him. He offered his prayers of lament. Why does evil abound, God? Why won't you act? How long is this, this is going to last? And we, we, we heard, we, we talked about that while awaiting the kingdom, we must make these prayers of righteous protest when things are not wrong. We have to keep the conversation going with God, bringing our fears and our worries to him expectantly. And God does respond. And in chapter 2, we heard God giving Habakkuk a life-changing vision. And he tells Habakkuk how to live while awaiting the kingdom, how to survive dark times. He gives him the secret. And the secret is to live by faith, patient faith. And while awaiting the kingdom, we live in this patient faith that resists the captivity to the moment and keeps silent before the one true God that makes space for silence to come to his holy temple and dwell before him. Well, this is the last chapter of Habakkuk's story. This is where it ends. So what comes from his heart and out of his lips after he has stood silently before God in his holy temple, after he has entered in. See, something profound happened in this prophet's heart from the beginning of his conversation to the end that changed his life. It was a radical shift, a reversal even of his outlook took place. Habakkuk begins in anger and protest and complaint towards God. We heard these words, listen again in chapter 1, uh, what he says in verses 2 to 3. This is where he started. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Wake up, God. The corrupt religious system in Jerusalem is grieving him. And the coming judgment of God through the Babylonian armies enrages him. He can't understand, and he protests. Yet the conversation closes on a very different note. 
The prophet ends by making an astounding proclamation of faith. One of the most stunning and beautiful statements of faith that we can actually find in all of Scripture. Let's look at that then at the very end of chapter 3. Verse 16 says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Habakkuk's complaint has turned into silence and quiet. His righteous protest has melded into patient faith. From questioning God about using Babylon for judgment, this is a horrible idea. Why would you do that, God? It's not the right way to go. Habakkuk now will wait quietly for the day of distress. He will rest in the midst of a terrible moment. He doesn't even stop there. Listen what he says next. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Even if the earth is failing around him, even if the crops are yielding no produce, have gone dry, this would have been a big deal in an agrarian society that knew a thing or two about famine. Even all this happens, if creation itself fails before him, if the devastation in my time and place is total and final, he says, yet I will still rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation. Like a sure-footed deer navigating the mountain heights, the rocky terrain, Habakkuk believes God is sustaining him to walk in high places. A great reversal has taken place from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 3. His outlook has totally changed from the beginning of the end to the conversation. What happened? What happened to him? How did this take place? What sustains his faith through the valley of the shadow of death and brings him into joyful trust and confidence? What is it? Did his circumstances change? Did God decide to take a different path, to change his mind, to not judge his people? Most of the time, this is what we're looking for in our prayers and what we base our response on. But history tells us that Habakkuk's circumstances didn't change. Not long after his conversation, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, revolted against Babylon that was then ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. Up until this time, Babylon had let Judah and Jerusalem remain doing their little thing uh, rather independently. But at this revolt, Babylon comes in and squashes it and begins to take captives away. They took all the people of power and influence who may lead revolts in the future and create discontent. They took them away and shipped them to Babylon as exiles. And then 10 years later, it got even worse. Another small uprising did take place in Jerusalem, and the city was sacked for good. All of Israel was then ruled by Babylon for most of the 6th century B.C., the circumstances didn't change. And until Babylon was, was eventually defeated and conquered, as Habakkuk prophesied they would be later on in 515, Israel was ruled and conquered. 
He wouldn't, Habakkuk wouldn't have lived to see this day of restoration later down the road. He would have died sometime during this exile, during the 6th century, during the period where God's people were ruled and were enslaved. His entire life, from this point on, was lived between God's promise to deliver his people through judgment and this deliverance actually coming. That was his life in the middle of that. His whole life of faith in that period, praying for God to act, living in patient faith on God's time. So how did he do it? What sustained his faith in all of this? What keeps him oriented and committed and grounded amidst it all? It's worship. It's worship. It's the practice of worship. Worship sustained his faith, and while we, we await the kingdom, and this is our, our idea today, worship sustains our faith too. Well, what is worship? Here's a definition that I think helps us. From the former Archbishop William Temple, he puts it like this. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy of that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all our sin. Worship. Worship is a fully God-centered act whereby we allow God to reorient us, our conscience, our mind, our imagination, our heart, our wills, through adoring Him as our first love. Worship is what happens in Habakkuk's conversation with God. The ongoing practice of worship sustains faith, then and certainly now. As we talk about worship, I'm, I'm primarily going to talk about it as a corporate together practice, like we're doing right now. Um, it's not limited to this in our lives, in the Christian life, but gathered worship, this sort of worship, is central, and it's a, it's a sustaining rhythm to our life of faith. So here are two dynamics I briefly want to look at of worship that we see at work in Habakkuk's last word and his response in chapter 3. So first, uh, at the beginning, 3 verse 2, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. And by the way, no one really knows what that word means. It's a musical term. It's an annotation to say this is a song. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. I heard you, God. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk has heard God. He heard what he said in the vision he gave. And now he responds back in fear and in awe, and it's a God-centered response. He goes on to this long, uh, long um, worshipful praise of who God is in this beautiful, artistic way. He encounters God in, in, in his holiness, and it changes everything. It draws him back, and, and he begins to recount the works of the Lord. He thinks about the exodus and, and all of the ways that God has saved his people through history, and he praises him in this picturesque fashion. So first, worship is an encounter with God. It's an encounter of love. And when I say encounter, 
I don't mean just warm fuzzies. I don't even mean a wildly emotional mountaintop experience. This sometimes happens when we worship, but it doesn't define worship. And it's not constituent of it. We can wholeheartedly worship God uh, without that emotional feel. By encounter, I mean we come close to, we turn towards, we are awed by, we focus in on God. We encounter him and it changes everything. All of our priorities shift. Have you ever encountered a grizzly bear on a hiking trail? Think about that sort of encounter in the woods. There was a sense of terror of beauty, of awe, and suddenly all of your priorities shift. (laughs) The trail is no longer that important, but survival, it changes everything. As William Temple highlights, the encounter with God looks differently at different times. Sometimes the worshipful encounter sharpens our conscience, and that's the forefront. Sometimes it feeds our mind with God's truth through learning about him in Scripture. Sometimes it's engaging our imagination in art or song or dance. Sometimes the encounter strengthens our will to walk in God's ways, to be faithful. And sometimes it's a simple capturing of our hearts, again, by the steadfast, sure love of the Lord. An encounter is not passive. It's not passive. It's engaged. It's a meeting. There's interchange. There's action and participation. And this relates to our second dynamic. It's encounter, and it's a verb. It's active. Habakkuk's prayer of response is a song. As I mentioned, it has these musical annotations that are mostly just found in the book of Psalms. It's lyrical Hebrew poetry. Uh, It was put to music. Habakkuk responds to God as the poets do in the book of Psalms, with, with meter and with rhyme and with creativity and art. And when we say, when when we say we're going to church or we're going to worship, we should also think about it in the sense that we're going to do something, to be involved, to worship. The Psalms help us with this. They challenge us with many different words that describe the actions of worship, the active participation of worship. They use words like singing and shouting and bowing down and kneeling and lifting hands and lying prostrate on the floor even, even dancing. All these are movements in the Psalms that tell us what worship is like. We could learn something from our Pentecostal friends, I think, sometimes. When we come to worship, into this room even to worship, as many of you do, where do you picture God in the equation? If this is a theater, well, which it actually is. This helps the exercise to be easy. Where do you picture God in the room? When we go to the theater, for example, uh, we're in the seats and the performers are on the stage. But when we come to worship, the seats where you're sitting actually become the stage, the place of performance. We come to do something, and that is to encounter the living God, to worship him actively. By the way, the people on the stage, like me and the liturgist and the one singing, in this, in this experiment, they're the prompters, the leaders. Uh, they're, they're suggesting, they're leading, way, uh, suggesting ways we can worship God, helping us worship God. But we're not the focus. Now, if all this sounds a little uncomfortable to you and you begin to picture yourself as some court gesture to appease, to appease God, um, know this. 
God plays all of these roles with us and for us. We can only cry out in worship, enabled by the Holy Spirit. Jesus leads us in worship. He's the one first worshiping all the time. He stands with us in the pews, in the seats, and sings. And of course, the Father, God the Father, is, is the recipient of our praise. So to sum up, encountering or worship is an encounter. It's an active encounter with God. And it's something we do and we're engaged in. And this is the sort of worship that sustains faith. Couch potato worship doesn't sustain faith. Going to the theater worship does not sustain faith either. Where we think we show up to be catered to and inspired a little bit to help us get through the week. If we take this attitude, what happens is we're playing into this consumer mentality that worship is actually about us. So the question when we leave from worship, from gathering to adore God together, shouldn't be, what did I get out of it today? What did I specifically take away from the sermon? The question is, did I enter into the unbroken praise of God going on all of the time? Did I come in and offer myself and take part? Did I show up and enter in? And by the way, if you're feeling weary and empty and you feel like you just limp in to worship and you can barely do anything, this isn't a guilt trip. But you can still do your part because God knows where you're coming from. He knows and he's a good father and he's not a demanding overlord but a gracious Father that helps you come in and offer yourself, that enables you, that shoulders that burden with, with you and helps you lift your chin and lift your gaze to his and see him. You see, it's about a shift of focus. In worship, it is on God, not us. And this is how, we, this is how worship frees us from ourselves and our captivity to the moment. Remember that time thing we talked about last week? by drawing us into this continual worship of God in eternity going on all the time around his throne. We get out of this, of this living for the moment. We're, reori we're reoriented, invited for this moment to just join in together, to focus in on God. Self-focused worship leads us right back to ourselves. It doesn't expand our horizons. It doesn't take our breath away. It doesn't challenge our intellect or convict our conscience. God-focused worship leads us out of ourselves and into the grand story of God's kingdom. It sustains our faith by establishing who we are, by freeing ourselves from our own captivity and looking to God and his beauty and encountering him as we stand and participate with others, too. In Habakkuk's day, his song of worship, this last response of his prophecy, it entered into the public worship of Israel, into their hymn book, or their PowerPoint deck, as we might think of it. The practice of worship sustained the faithful in Israel for dark days ahead. And when Babylon did sack Jerusalem and carry off many exiles from their home homeland, there was a core that was still sustained. And it didn't only sustain their faith, those who were carried away, but the faith of the next generation, too. You see, while all the chaos was going on, while Babylon was invading and knocking down the walls of Jerusalem, amidst looming armies, amidst corruption, some people in Jerusalem 
They decided to keep on worshiping God, and they decided not to do it by themselves, but to bring along their kids too. To bring them to worship God week after week, to pray with them and to lead them in the ways of faith. We know this because the next season of Israel's life in exile proved in many ways to be a resilient season of faith for Israel, despite having their land stripped away and their temple gone. They lost everything, and they were ruled by a pagan nation. And when they lost everything, they learned to worship and pray. They learned that what they thought was essential wasn't actually essential. And when they had nothing left except faith in God, that was actually all they needed to live abundant life. We get to know some of these exiles in the book of Daniel. You see Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, they were growing up during these dark times. They were young boys. But someone had brought them to worship. Someone had taught them to know and love God. Someone had taught them to worship at a young age. And these four teenage boys become the exemplars of faith in exile. Teenage boys don't have a great reputation in the world, do they? Always up to mischief, lacking self-control in the throes of puberty. They're hopeless. Yet, these four teenage boys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they knew God so intimately that they live resiliently in faith in the exile, despite all the challenges and temptations that Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar can put before them in his royal courts. They choose to live by faith. How did they do it? They never gave up their habit of meeting with God. They never stopped worshiping. When the paper was signed to throw Daniel into a den of lions, what did he do? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously, as he had always done. Daniel goes into his upper room as he did every day and worships God. He returns to his meeting place with the God of the universe the place where he is ultimately delighted in and loved and cries out to God. And he physically kneels and keeps silence before God in his holy temple and faces Jerusalem. He withdraws from the chaos and he reorients himself to God. That is what sustains faith. Someone had taught him the habit of worship when he was a young boy. Someone had brought him, maybe kicking and screaming, I don't know. And as we pray, as we pray this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and we live in patient faith as a people, one thing we must do, we must do, we have to do, is to bring the young people in our midst along with us and point them towards God, because no one else is going to do it, and they are lost and hopeless without him. That's why what we do in that other room there is so important. No one else is going to do it for us. Worship sustains faith. It sustained the faith of the exiles, and it sustains our faith too. But how? What's so, what's so important about us? One other observation about it. One key reason how worship sustains our faith is that when we worship God and love and allow him to reorient us to his kingdom, 
we realize something really powerful. We realize that the world around us, the gods of this day, Babylon or whoever it is, we realize they're not as powerful as they seem. And they're going to crumble and fall. Habakkuk and the exiles, they knew this about Babylon. That's how they lived on in patient faith, even beyond their individual lifespans. They knew it would crumble and fall. Babylon, Athens, Rome, the great dynasties of China, the British Empire, the United States, their dominance, their power, their cultural power, it will all crumble and fall. All of it. Secularism. Secularism, the air we breathe, it's the worldview of the day, the gospel that preaches the gospel of self, the message that you need to throw off all of your obligations and commitments and anything that might hinder your happiness in the moment, in the now. You need to get rid of anything that places limits on you, and then you'll have the true freedom from finding the meaning inside of you, and that's all you need to be happy. What if it's not actually as strong as it seems? What if it's actually leaving people lonely and hopeless and in constant search of something that has real depth and real meaning outside of themselves that they can only find by finding something that penetrates the realms of our world, which is God? Something that won't gather dust, that thieves won't break in and steal, that won't end in ruins. This gospel isn't going to disappear, this gospel of secularism isn't going to disappear, I don't think, in our, in our lifetime. But it's not as strong as it seems either. Many people are seeing it for the empty idol of self that it is, and it's leaving them empty. Worshiping the one true God, the God who came himself and who brought his kingdom to earth, helps us frame our lives with God's kingdom in mind, not the gods of this day that will fail. Only if we're living with this kingdom as our end can we share this deep, deep faith that Habakkuk confesses that if everything fails in the world, I will still rejoice in God my Savior. Habakkuk's circumstances, they never changed. But he lives by faith in his historical time, in his place, by setting his gaze on a kingdom that will indeed last. Habakkuk's story is, it is our story too. They're one and the same, but there's just one difference. It's a big difference. We know the king. We know the king of this kingdom. We know his name. And in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we can confess and we know that the gods of this day and the spiritual forces of evil that animate them, they cannot stand and last. They will fail. And under the proclamation of the gospel and the righteous living by faith, they cannot and they will not stand. And although secularism is, going, is not going away in our lifetimes, and it will likely be the dominant mood and faith of our culture when all of us are dead in a hundred years or so, at least in this part of the world, the kingdom of God, it's not going away either. The gospel that Jesus came in Jesus Christ, that God came in Jesus Christ to preach good news to the poor, 
to set the captives free, that gospel isn't going away either. It's going to last, and it's going to last forever. This gospel has already outlasted countless kingdoms, haven't it? Hasn't it? That's why we're here today worshiping Jesus and not Julius Caesar. And it's not going anywhere. Which king shall you choose to serve? You and I, we are the people God has chosen to live faithfully and patiently in faith at this time and place against the powers of our world. You and I are the church, the bride of Christ today. Which king will you serve? The one whose horizons of time are long, are eternal, who promised the good gift of abundant life and who paid for it with his own blood, or the gods of today, whose rule may last a hundred years or so, but will crumble and disappear into obscurity. Which king will you serve? Will you pray with me?